All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. A completely botched withdrawal in Afghanistan. We have Americans stranded. We have American allies being butchered by the Taliban. What exactly is going to be done about it? And what do we learn overall from this entire experience in Afghanistan? What should it mean for us as a nation, as a military? What should we expect to learn from this so that we don't repeat some of the same mistakes that we're seeing materializing here that have hurt our soldiers, our allies, and overall the U.S. Rep uh, reputation. We're going to be talking about that here on Making the Argument with Nick Freitas, where we make the arguments to help defend a free society. Okay, before we go into all the specifics, I want to share a story very, very quickly. And, and this was uh, a meeting I was at very recently. And at this meeting, we had a, a wide array of people with different subject matter expertise that is relevant to Afghanistan. We had special operations forces from three different countries represented. We had people that had worked in the State Department. We had people that had worked in missionary work, in aid work, et cetera. You name it, we had a, a wide array of people there with a wide array of experience, all discussing what was currently going on in Afghanistan. And it didn't go down exactly the way you might think it would. Because obviously when you have people with that sort of subject matter expertise, with that sort of experience, either on the ground in places like Iraq or Afghanistan and other uh, areas around the world, you would expect kind of more of an in-depth talk about foreign policy or maybe defense strategy. Um, and, and some of that was discussed, but I want to really emphasize something here because it's, it's going to inform why I'm talking about the rest of this, um, what's going on in Afghanistan. I, I want you to understand the lens of which I'm, I'm trying to view this because it's become very, very easy to oversimplify anything and to simply point blame, right? There, there's no shortage of political hay to be made. But what I saw is, is the predominant concern of the people in that room who had served in Afghanistan. And again, I served in Iraq. I didn't serve in Afghanistan. But as the people that served in Afghanistan, that had family in Afghanistan, that had friends in Afghanistan, their primary concern at this point was not whether or not we should stay in Afghanistan or leave in Afghanistan. It was really about how we left and what essentially is happening, not only to U.S. personnel on the ground, whether they be defense, State Department, um, you know, press, uh, contractors, but also the friends that they had made in Afghanistan, the people they had worked with, the people that had sacrificed and believed in the promise that the United States was making and decided to fight alongside us against a very, very brutal enemy in the form of the Taliban, as well as terrorist organizations that were operating in Afghanistan now, and now have woken up to find themselves very, very suddenly in a position where their entire lives and the lives of their families are at risk. And we had one individual in particular share a story, one of triumph, one of tragedy. The triumph one was they had worked Paperwork had been denied two separate times for an individual that they had worked with in Afghanistan. It was finally approved and they were able to get out of country. And no sooner had he learned about that than he learned about another friend of his who him, his wife, his children were stopped at a checkpoint and they were murdered. And that's the reality right now. That's the reality on the ground in Afghanistan. And as we talk about the grand strategy involved, and I think that's important, it's always important to take a step back and look at these things strategically and realistically but if you do so while at the same time completely forgetting the humanity involved and that ultimately U.S. foreign policy is about American interest, but it is also about ensuring that American honor is intact because I believe as quaint as some people want to suggest that it is, honor is integral to American policy and American interests. And if you're going to make certain commitments, it is very important to stand by those commitments to people. And I don't see that being done right now. But I think it's important that we, we remember that what we are talking about here is not just political implications, defense implications, strategic implications. Ultimately, this does come down to how this is affecting people on the ground. 
So let's go ahead and get into this discussion. The first thing we're going to talk about today is going to be the withdrawal. Now, I want to emphasize something here. That's not all we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how did we get into Afghanistan? Why did the objectives change over time? Uh, what were some positive effects of us being there? What were some negative effects? And most importantly, what should we learn going forward? What should we understand about not only American military power and American foreign policy, but what should we understand about us as a culture which informs that policy and that, those military decisions? Because we, we see the change over time and how it affects U.S. military policy and how U.S. military policy affects other people that we're engaging with. And it's really important that we ask some of these fundamental questions. But I know everyone right now is focused on the withdrawal for good reason, because that's the one thing we're going to talk about today that we could actually affect a change on immediately and one needs to be affected. So let's talk about it. So right now, the Biden administration is essentially blaming Donald Trump that this was his treaty that he signed with the Taliban. It was supposed to go into effect uh, May 1st. They pushed it off uh, till August. And so ultimately, their, their argument has, has somewhat been that, you know, no amount of additional U.S. presence, no amount of additional U.S. power, not one more year in Afghanistan was going to change anything with respect to what was ultimately going to happen. Now, the question is, is, is that true? Right. That, that's a that's a pretty powerful statement because they are essentially making the argument that this was always bound to happen. And yes, certain things you know, possibly could have been done better. But ultimately, this this was going to be the conclusion. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about if, even if you believe that, even if you believe that, which I'm, I'm not discounting that, right? I, I think we should consider what they're saying. Even if you believe that, how does that excuse what has gone on with this withdrawal? Because let's be intellectually honest here. When, when Trump was negotiating with the Taliban, I'll be very honest, I had a problem with that. I had a problem with that because I still see the Taliban as a, as a brutal authoritarian uh, regime that supports terrorism. Now, you can make a real politic argument that they're the ones going to be in charge. So if, if you're going to leave the country, you, you have to have some sort of arrangement with them, it, at least to make sure that they're not attacking U.S. or U.S. interests. You can make that argument. I still have a problem with negotiating with the Taliban. So the question is, is what would you do if you wanted to leave Afghanistan? And let me be very clear, I do want to leave Afghanistan, at least in, in the way that we've understood our presence in Afghanistan for the past close to two decades. If you wanted to do that, how would you do it effectively? Well, first of all, Trump set a, a negotiation up with the Taliban that was based off of conditions. It wasn't this, this unconditional treaty where we're going to be gone by you know, May no matter what. That was not what was going on with that treaty. And it is intellectually dishonest. It's deliberately dishonest to suggest that what it, that's what it was. There was a, a conditional withdrawal of U.S. forces on the ground. Now, I think May was somewhat of an aggressive timeline, to be perfectly honest. Um, so the question is, how would you have done it effectively if you wanted to leave? Well, first of all, conditions were very important. I would have not have ceded control to the country, to the Taliban. Um, by the same token, you understand that there's certain areas where, where the Taliban essentially is, uh, the, the popular representation of particular people. You see that a lot within some of the Pashtun groups and the Pashtun tribes. There, there is a, a pro-Taliban bent there. That doesn't mean you have the same thing in areas where you have uh, Uzbek ethnicities or Tajik um, or, or other ethnic groups within Afghanistan. And it's important to understand that when you're talking about Afghanistan, you, you're, you're not talking about a country comprised of people that have a strong national identity. Um, some might, but very, very tribal in nature. So the culture is very different. And there's, there's a lot more loyalty to one's individual tribe or one's uh, individual area or family group than there is to some sort of, of national identity or, or government in the form of Afghanistan. So it's very important to remember. So as you're doing the negotiations, you have to think about what your objectives are. If your objectives are to get the United States out of Afghanistan while at the same time maintaining some degree of stability in the region so you don't have a complete Taliban takeover, well, then how do you achieve that? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that Trump drastically reduced the number of troops that we had in Afghanistan from somewhere around 15,000 to somewhere around 2,500. Right? It had been, I think, over a year since we had taken a combat casualty, combat-related casualty in Afghanistan. So it's not as if the Americans were doing the bulk of the fighting at this point. We had largely moved into an advisory and support role. That doesn't mean that no combat operations were going on where, where some American might be involved. Uh, certainly Americans were in danger. I'm, I'm not suggesting that at all. But it is important to understand that this was not like the height of the war in Afghanistan where we were going cave to cave or our guys were going village to village hunting down Taliban or terrorist organizations. Right? There was a lot less of that going on um, 
in 2020, 2021, actually ever since about you know 2015, um, we, we were definitely taking more of an advisory role as opposed to an, an active combat role. Um, so as we're transitioning to that advisory role, the important thing to understand is this. In order to maintain the stability, you have to have a military and a law enforcement apparatus that can actually maintain stability that to, to some degree um, is seen to have authority not simply because they have guns and power, but because they're seen as being you know, a, a legitimate representation from the recognized government. And did you have that to some degree? A little bit, but there was still a, a great deal of problems because once again, we're not talking about a country with a really strong national identity in many areas of the country. And so the way that they were trained to operate was largely in conjunction with U.S. forces. Now, that was, that was again, being reduced as U.S. forces were not as prevalent within that fight um, and was certainly not as numerous within the country. But they were still, they were still built around fighting uh, with, with U.S. forces providing logistical support, providing air support. And, and that's critical when you're talking about everything from combined uh, arms operations to essentially instilling confidence that if something goes really bad, there's going to be someone there in order to get you out of it, whether that be through medevac or whether it be through airstrikes, right? That component is really important uh, to a military, especially a, a very new military that is, it is still developing its own traditions, its own standard operating procedures, its own processes for working. And when that military is very dependent upon either U.S. advice, air support, or logistics, if you pull those things all of a sudden, right, then you shouldn't be surprised when the Army, no matter how big it is, starts to disintegrate very quickly. Because what you've sent the message to is that the, the Taliban, which has had to rely almost exclusively on organic support, and then certain outside entities, which are providing it with munitions and, and uh, arms, when they're able to operate within that environment, but all of a sudden the Afghan military, if you're a soldier in the Afghan military, and you don't know if you're going to be get, getting paid next week, and all of a sudden the air support you were relying on is no longer there, the medevac you were relying on is no longer there, the mechanics that you needed to fix your vehicles and, and fix your aircraft are no longer there, right? If, if, if that all goes away, then the military essentially goes away. This idea that they're just going to continue to uh, fight as, as an infantry unit, you know, deployed in areas that might not be their home or their village without a reliable supply chain in order to support them, okay, that, that doesn't make a great deal of sense. But, but essentially, you know, Joe Biden was getting up there saying, well, their, their military is this big. They have this many law enforcement personnel. This, okay, again, and that doesn't mean a whole lot if the way that you have designed them and trained them is to fight in conjunction with U.S. support, whether it be through air, special operations advisors, or logistical support. If you take those things away, then one of the foundational pillars of the military that you're relying on to do its job goes away with it. So essentially, you've done something that, quite frankly, the U.S. government has been very good at doing, unfortunately, and that's you created so much dependency within the Afghan military that they couldn't effectively operate without us. So if you really wanted to look ahead toward withdrawal, the question should have been, how much internal stability do we have within the Afghan military, both from an esprit de corps standpoint, which is to say, does somebody want to be in the military? Are they being effectively paid? Do they actually care about the mission? Do they have adequate training? Do they have a logistical supply line that can ensure that they get what they need when they need it? Or do you have all of those things? Because if you don't, then you don't have a strong military. You might have a lot of people in the military. You might have a lot of guns pointed in different directions, but you don't have a strong military. And if you're going to withdraw and your objective is to maintain some sort of stability within the country, and you have not put into place the very mechanisms which are supposed to provide that stability in your absence, then you have set yourself up for failure with withdrawal. And that's part of the problem that we're seeing right now, was the idea that we're going to start moving troops out before we've actually gotten everything else out that we need to get out. So that, that's step one, right? You have to have a military that is able, a military, law enforcement agency, and a government which is able to maintain some form of control, right? Clearly, we weren't able to achieve that. Second point, when you were evacuating or when you were leaving a country, all right, that, that where, where there's still hostile fighting going on, there's essentially two ways that you can do it. You can move all of your guys with guns out and then move everybody else out, or you can move everybody else out and then the guys with guns. Which do you think probably works better in a hostile environment? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be overly flippant and arrogant here, but this part just pisses me off because it's so damn obvious. If you're in a hostile environment and you're trying to move out 
American equipment, American personnel, the guys with the guns are the last to leave. Why? Because they've got the guns. And, and as much as Joe Biden thinks he can diplomacy his way out of this, I got news for Joe Biden. The, the carrot of diplomacy typically doesn't work unless you've got a big-ass stick you can hit somebody with. And the military is that stick. And the reason why the Taliban hadn't overrun Kabul, even when we had very few troops over there and we, we were still doing active air sorties and everything else, was because they understood at that moment with U.S. troops on the ground, with U.S. air power, ready to go and support the Afghan military, they could still be devastated. The amount of casualties they would take versus what they could actually achieve didn't add up for them. But as we're just moving U.S. troops out and as we're essentially committing to not engage in active military engagements against the Taliban, well, now the cost-benefit analysis changed for them. And the Taliban got incredibly aggressive and very brutal. Because U.S. military presence, combined with a lack of will to actually use the U.S. military assets and resources that we have, was significantly diminished. And so now we're in a situation where we have Americans stranded. Now we're in a situation where we have allies to the United States, Afghans that have worked with us, that are now waking up in a country that is openly hostile to them. And they can't get out of country. We have billions of dollars of U.S. military equipment that have just fallen into the hands of the Taliban. I, I think it's funny that the same government that is working so hard in other areas to get AR-15s out of the hands of Americans just gave a whole bunch to the Taliban. And then the Taliban used them to go around and confiscate weapons from the Afghan people saying, you don't need these anymore because we're back to protect you. How eerily familiar does that argument sound with respect to gun confiscation? And I don't want to segue too much there, but I think it is worth mentioning. So if you wanted to do an effective withdrawal, what would you do? Again, you would have set up a situation where the military and law enforcement could have been able to stand on their own, not just with respect to training or equipment, but an actual logistical supply chain that they could rely upon. Clearly that wasn't present. So the question at that point is, do you leave a small contingent of U.S. forces so that they know that they still have advisory training, logistical, and air support? Or do you just completely remove all U.S. forces right now? Well, again, we weren't taking combat casualties in Afghanistan. So you could make a good argument that maintaining a small presence there, if it would be enough to keep the Taliban at bay, that might have been worth it from a U.S. foreign policy objective. But we chose not to do that. So then the question is, if you're going to move all the U.S. forces out, do, do you wait to move them out until you've got everybody else out? I would say that you do. That seems fairly, that seems fairly obvious. Because right now we're in a situation when, when you're having to abandon the, the presidential palace, when you're potentially in a situation where you've got to abandon um, a military outpost or, or government facilities that could you know, still have uh, you know, secret documents, now you're coming into a situation where the Taliban runs in, they've got our equipment, they've got the people that work with us, and they've got access to intel. I mean, I, I cannot imagine a worse betrayal of the people that we worked with over there that we made promises to than to say not only are we going to leave in this manner, but you're also stuck here because we couldn't wait a couple of months in order to make sure that we knew exactly who should be able to leave the country and the order in which that should take place in order to limit the Taliban's ability to come in, overrun areas, and butcher people. The third component of this that I want to talk about is when would you do this? Like if, if, you, if you really wanted to facilitate even a quick withdrawal, when would you do it? Well, Joe Biden was saying that essentially the F or the State Department was saying that essentially the Afghan government didn't want Americans to say that, hey, we're leaving. And if you want to come, you can come because they didn't want a, a, a full drop and collapse and trust of the Afghan government. Well, clearly we're past that point. But the other thing that they were asking for was don't leave in the summer because in Afghanistan, there are fighting seasons. The Taliban typically doesn't fight in the winter. It's harsh. Not to say they never conduct combat operations in the winter, but they're severely reduced. It is spring, summer, fall. Those are the areas where you see most of the fighting. Harsh winter, less fighting. So if you were going to pull out, would it make sense to pull out in the middle of the fighting season? Or would it make sense to pull out right as you go into the winter season where now you know they're not, there's not going to be the same degree of operations? Or logistically, it's going to be much more difficult for the Taliban to conduct operations. But apparently that wasn't taken into consideration either. So let's, let's sum up this withdrawal question very quickly. First of all, if you want a full withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
right? Which we can debate all day long whether or not that's wise, but if you want to full withdraw from Afghanistan, what do you do first? You leave the military in place, you get out your sensitive equipment, you get out your sensitive documents, you get out anybody else, non-combat personnel, non-military personnel, they get removed from country because they're not the ones you rely on in a firefight. So you remove them first to include allies. And you've already identified, you should have already identified which allies are going to be eligible to leave Afghanistan on U.S. military transport for their safety and the, the safety of their family since they worked with and supported the United States. You do that first. Secondly, you take into consideration when exactly you're going to leave and how you're going to do this. So, for instance, it, it's not just about non-combat, non-military personnel first, military personnel last. It's also about when do you do this in order to give both the, the, the nation that you're fighting with and your enemies in country, when, when you give the greatest advantage to your allies within that area. And if you're doing it in the middle of fighting season, when all you had to do was wait a few more months, which would have assisted with a lot of the other logistical issues that we've been talking about, you wait a few more months, you wait until what goes into the, basically the fighting season is over or, or significantly diminished, and you, you leave then instead of at the height of fighting season. And the third component that we talked about is, and this is something that should have happened years ago, you have to wean the Afghan military off of U.S. logistical support and air support. Because again, if your objective is to completely remove all U.S. support, all U.S. military personnel and contracting personnel from Afghanistan, which again, I, I think that's dubious, but if that's what your goal is, then you have to do it in such a way to where you have an Afghan military and law enforcement that is actually able to stand on its own two feet. And again, that doesn't just mean training. It means a logistical and support network behind the military. Joe Biden talking about the number of people in uniform doesn't mean anything in a modern military if that modern military can no longer rely on a logistical support network they had been previously dependent upon in order to conduct effective operations. So you had to reduce the dependency on the U.S. Uh, you had to reduce Afghan military and law enforcement dependency on the U.S. You had to pull out non-combat personnel and, and approved allies before you moved out military personnel. And you should have timed this in conjunction with the end of the fighting season around wintertime. We did none of those things. And I honestly have no idea why. Usually I can point to something and say, okay, well, they were concerned about this timeline. Or strategically, they had to do this because of this. And, and I can agree or disagree with the decision, but I can usually understand what their reasoning was behind it. I'm going to be very honest with you. I am baffled this time around. I, I have no idea why this was done the way it is. And again, I'm not accusing the administration of intentionally causing a debacle. I, I, I will chalk up to incompetence what I can before I assume deviance or deviousness. But this is incredible. This is, this is shockingly idiotic. And I have no idea why the administration tried to conduct the withdrawal this way. Because it would not have been difficult. It would not have been that difficult to to do this in a very different way that would have provided at least a much more smooth transition of U.S. military and civilian personnel out of Afghanistan. We did not do that, and th and there is no excuse for it. You don't get to blame anybody else for this. There is no excuse. So ultimately, when we talk about the withdrawal, the debate is not about should we stay or should we leave. Again, I've been advocating, you know, largely pulling out of Afghanistan for years now. But the manner in which we did it makes no sense to me. And I am always troubled when I cannot find even the slightest bit of rationale to justify what it is that we're doing. Right? I, I, can, I can deal with rationale that I don't like. But I have a real hard time with a complete absence of rationale. And I still don't get it. And this administration still has not explained it to me. So that's a withdrawal. But I don't want to stop there. And the reason I don't want to stop there is because... Unfortunately, we have lost thousands of lives in Afghanistan uh, of, of U.S. personnel, tens of thousands uh, of allied Afghans and other allied forces that served in Afghanistan. You know, the, one of the primary objectives over there was to get rid of the Taliban, degrade terrorist uh, organizations and capability, deny them a safe haven, and later on it became to provide a, a stable government within Afghanistan, stabilize the region. Out of all those objectives, the one that you could claim has been accomplished to some degree was that various terrorist organizations, whether it be Al-Qaeda and whatnot, were severely degraded in Afghanistan. Obviously, the operations that our, our men and women in uniform did over there 
were highly effective with respect to um, you know, destroying certain terrorist groups and elements over there. But a lot of our other objectives from, from completely degrading or removing the Taliban and keeping them out of power to maintaining a, a stable government within Afghanistan, these things were not achieved. And so the biggest question that we're going to have to ask ourselves going forward is, what are we going to learn from this? Because if we don't, if we don't at least learn from the political failures in Afghanistan, and I'm very deliberate when I use that term, political failures. I do not see military failures, and I do not see significant military failures in Afghanistan. The men and women in uniform did what they were asked to do with respect to the capacity that they could do it. And then there wasn't a single Taliban unit out there. There wasn't a single Al-Qaeda cell out there that wanted to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Americans because if you did, it was a one-way ticket to hell. So they did their job. They did what they were trained to do. But there was political failures here that were significant. <coughs> Excuse me. And if we don't learn from those, then the insult that is already being foisted upon our men and women that served over there for 20 years by the complete debacle of this withdrawal is made significantly worse by the fact that we could potentially find ourselves in a situation where we send other young men and women from the United States into a similar situation, having learned nothing or even worse, all the wrong lessons from Afghanistan. So I want to go into another part of this. We're going to talk about a few things. First thing we're going to talk about is why we went there in the first place. Then we're going to talk about what were the objectives and how did they change. And we're going to talk about American culture and war. Right? I know this sounds, I'm, I'm going to go quick here, but I, there's certain points we need to break up in each one of these. So why did we go over there in the first place? Well, obviously, the Taliban gave safe harbor and shelter to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks on 9-11. Why do I even bring this up? And this is, hear me when I say this. If you are 30 years old and listening to this, you were in elementary school when 9-11 happened. If you're 20 years old and listening to this, you weren't even born when 9-11 happened. And so I think it's, it's very important for many of us who are in our 40s, and this was one of those moments in history where you remember where you were at when it happened, and you knew something was about to fundamentally change with respect to how we conducted ourselves in the world. It is not fair to project that onto people that have no recollection of it. And so it is necessary to remind people because I have seen some very bad arguments at some points coming from people that ideologically I tend to agree with, talking about we never should have been there in the first place, we never should have gotten in, in the first place. I would just like to remind them there were legitimate reasons to go into Afghanistan. There were legitimate reasons to do that. Because they were a part of the overall attack that took place on the United States. Now, we can argue all day long on, whether, on, on how we went in or how we did it or how we operated with the Taliban. We can argue those points. I'm fine with that. But I am, I'm a little bit tired of hearing that because of what's gone on for the last 20 years, that there was absolutely no reason to go in there in the first place is ridiculous. Now, how did we go in there? How did we go in there? Well, initially, there was actually a very small U.S. footprint in Afghanistan. We had a lot of Green Berets because it turns out Green Berets are the ones that conduct unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. And originally in Afghanistan, we were conducting unconventional warfare. You had CIA going in, making certain contacts. You had special forces going in, Green Berets going in, linking up with indigenous forces. A lot of it at that time was the Northern Alliance that was already fighting against the Taliban. So we had people on the ground that were already fighting the Taliban. We linked up with them, and then we provided additional support. Did we provide it by bringing in a bunch of armored divisions? No, you had a 12-man ODA, a Special Forces Op Operation Detachment Alpha, an A-team, <clears throat> going in there, linking up with a particular group, and then assisting, advising, providing air support, providing, uh, providing uh, financial support, in order to help them make their operations more effective. And here's what was fascinating. Long before we had tens of thousands of troops on the ground in Afghanistan, we did a pretty good job of degrading overall Taliban uh, capacity, military capacity and capability with the indigenous forces that we had teamed up with SF and other special operations and other three little agencies that were operating on the ground. And the, the thing I want to imagine just for a second is, what if we had decided that the way that we were going to operate in Afghanistan was, was going to stay very, very focused on targeting the Taliban, targeting Al-Qaeda and terrorist organizations, but not assuming for ourselves the overall responsibility for the war in Afghanistan, which was essentially a civil war, and 
for the remaking of that entire nation? What if we had not assumed that responsibility? What if we had left it to working with allies that we had on the ground and allowing for more of a politically organic solution to be created? I, I, will, I will forever be curious on how, that, on how Afghanistan would have developed if we had not assumed for ourselves the role of remaking Afghanistan in our own image. Now, there's going to be some people that say that nation building can and does work. Right, we're going to go over the, the bad conservative argument for that and the good conservative argument. The bad conservative argument seems to say that, well, because it worked in Germany or because it worked in Japan, therefore it works all the time, provided that you spend enough money and treasure and resources and blood. Or, or you just have to have enough commitment. Right? I, that is a bad argument, and I see various people that generally associate themselves with being neoconservatives making this argument that if you just put enough blood, treasure, and commitment in there, you can, you can change a, a nation in order to be um, you know, a, a representative country in, in the classical liberal tradition. The thing that I would argue back on that is that there, are, there can be times when assisting a nation in the development of its own political processes in order to create an ally for the United States instead of an enemy. That is possible. And you saw that in Germany and Japan. So real quick, what were the major differences between Germany, Japan, and Afghanistan? Why did U.S. military presence in our political engagement in Germany and Japan yield better results than what it yielded in Afghanistan? And I think we have to look at other conditions here. First of all, in, in Germany, Germany was split after World War II. You had East Germany, you had West Germany. And so Germany was not simply in a, in a position where um, it, you know, the United States military had come in, occupied, and now we were going to drastically change their culture. We were in a position where, one, they had a massive threat in the, in the, in the uh, reality of the USSR, of the Soviet Union, which they didn't want to fall prey to. They didn't want to be occupied like East Germany was. And so U.S. military presence was welcomed by the people in order to keep the USSR at bay, largely welcomed by the people. Now, a lot of people also say that the Marshall Plan was, was huge in securing West Germany. I actually contest that, but that's a podcast for another day. The other thing I want to focus on there is that Germany also had a culture where they had had representative government before. This was not a brand new concept to them. So now you have a culture where there's, there's some shared cultural institutions between the liberating and then occupying force, the United States military, and the government and the people in which you're operating with. Right, you had large German immigrant populations within the United States. There was a general cultural understanding that existed between Germany and the United States that did not exist between the United States and Afghanistan. A lot of the institutions, a lot of the traditions, the religion, all of these things were similar in many respects. Not to mention the fact that there was a massive common enemy between Germany and the United States in the form of the USSR. So all of these things combined create an environment where with U.S. military presence and, popular, or, and uh, proper political engagement, you could create a strong ally in that area. And we largely saw that happen within Germany. In Japan, that was a little bit more difficult because you didn't have the same common cultural aspects that you did like between the United States and Germany. But what you did have in Japan was a very strong sense of national identity. Now, some of that could have been brought up, or some of that was with the emperor, but a lot of it was just simply cultural. There was a great deal of pride and understanding on what it meant to be Japanese. At the same time, you had huge threats to Japan in that area as well. What was it? The Soviet Union and Communist China. Japan had a front row seat to watch what was going on in Korea, and they didn't want to be next. So there was, there was not only the fact that we completely and utterly destroyed Japanese military capability, but there was also the fact that you had a strong national identity, plus you had a common enemy that they saw as a threat. And when the United States demonstrated that we weren't just going to come in there and, and essentially take all the country's resources, that we were serious about helping them rebuild, there, there, there was a much greater capacity for working together in order to achieve something that ended up being a strong economic ally, a strong political ally, and, and ultimately a representative government. Now you look at Afghanistan, where you don't have a strong national identity, that you've had repeated invasions over time in that area of the world, where you have strong ethnic identities and differences with respect to what they value in various parts of the country that are separated geographically. You have incredibly difficult terrain from which to operate in. You are surrounded by countries that don't necessarily present an enemy to Afghanistan as a whole, they might present an enemy to one tribe or one group versus another group, which means it 
made incredibly hard to unify the population around a particular common enemy or a, or a, a common goal. So you, you didn't have a strong national identity. You didn't have um, a, a common enemy which united the, the people within Afghanistan for, for common cause. And you didn't even have common objectives with respect to what people envisioned Afghanistan to be. Because there was a lot more local and tribal identity than there was national identity. Not to mention the fact that from a log logistical standpoint, much more difficult to supply and work within Afghanistan than it was Germany or Japan, both of which have harbors and easy access to the ocean and trade lines. Afghanistan does not. It's, it's much harder to actually develop economic capacity within Afghanistan because, quite frankly, the biggest cash crop over there was poppies for opium. When it came to things like rare earth metals and the other things that they could develop within the Afghan economy, it was incredibly difficult to get to, in part because of terrain, in part because of lack of transportation or access to ports, and in part because of all the fighting that was going on. So th this idea that because nation building works under one set of conditions, that therefore it can work on another set of conditions equally as well, doesn't strike me as being overly intellectually rigorous. So this begs the question, if that is going to be your objective, how do you actually engage in it? Let's talk about a bad conservative argument. Let's talk about a good conservative argument. A bad conservative argument is you just bomb the hell out of them. Uh, to be quite frank, I get really sick of this. Not because there isn't a time when, when significant, overwhelming military force is appropriate. Obviously, there is. I know I've been the tip of that particular spear. But this idea that just bomb them all to hell is going to be sufficient in order to achieve long-term strategic goals within an area that you're trying to provide some sort of stability on is asinine. It might sound really good in a tweet, but it doesn't work all that well on the ground in reality. Yes, there has to be the threat of being able to bomb them to hell, but there also has to be the other side of how do you incentivize someone toward a particular direction. And when we look at that, that is a combination, there's a whole of government response with respect to how you engage in that particular environment. But one of the things that I've had, that, what I think is the good conservative argument here is that if we're looking about how we're going to operate in some of these countries, especially if we're concerned about long-term regional stability, then you have, to, you have to understand something. You are either going to attempt drastic measures because all throughout history, when you were dealing with a population that essentially refused to capitulate, you know, what the, you know what the standard mechanism was? Deportation. But we need to understand something about the American culture with respect to fighting. We don't see ourselves as a conquering force. And I think that's a good thing. We believed in the concept of just war, the idea that we don't engage in aggressive action. We, we, engage, we engage in aggressive action once we're at war, but we don't instigate wars in order to gain territory or in order to gain resources. We do it as a, as a largely defensive measure in order to prevent someone from attacking us or our allies or protecting vital strategic U.S. interests. So that when we actually can go into these engagements and we, have, and we have an objective which goes beyond either degrading a particular military capability or punishing a particular regime, if we're actually talking about regime change and ultimately nation building, then the question that we're going to have to ask ourselves going forward, and I hope Afghanistan will teach us something on this, is that simply expending blood and treasure does not mean you're going to create a representative republic or parliamentarian democracy or, or stable economy. And, I, and I, I am really hoping that one of the lessons that we learn is that understanding the culture for which you are operating in, the unique economic, cultural, religious, geographic, logistical concerns within a particular area is going to help direct what sort of government is possible within the time that you have. Now, you can certainly make an argument that if you're willing to stay there for three or four generations, maybe you can affect a larger change. But I'm willing to bet that in most cases, the United States is not willing to be somewhere and to play a pivotal role in that country's future for three to four generations, for 80 to 100 years. Because honestly, that's what it takes if you're trying to get the sort of cultural environment where you can foster certain forms of government and certain theories about things like human rights. It doesn't happen overnight in most places. It is an evolutionary process within a culture. And to suggest that if you just have one more armored division on the ground, you can change all that is absurd. So you either need to be prepared to stay for 80 to 100 years, or you need to allow for a more gradual development within a particular culture 
where the political stability that you seek may not look exactly what you would like your in-state to be, but is sufficient and possible within the culture and the area that you're operating in. And we're going to have to take a very hard look at that because the United States has had a reputation in the past for backing some pretty unsavory characters because the option was between one unsavory character and another unsavory character. And I completely understand the impulse within the American culture to not want to live by that dynamic, to not want to constantly choose between the lesser of two evils, but to try to achieve something genuinely good. So I'm not suggesting that we have to prop up and support dictators because they happen to be in our interest. But I am saying that we have to be realistic with respect to what we expect within an environment when a culture might not have the same embrace of certain political or economic philosophies that we do in this country. And so we need to be realistic about what we expect, not only of the military, but of the American people. Because every time you send somebody overseas, that's a mother, that's a father, that's a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, children, that are missing out on something. And if you're going to continue to send them back there year after year, generation after generation, we have soldiers that served in Afghanistan that were not born when 9-11 happened. Then you damn well better have a coherent strategy for what it is that you're actually expecting to achieve, and it should be attainable. And I think a large part of our objectives in Afghanistan were simply not attainable with respect to the conditions that we were working in. And no amount of, of, of U.S. blood or treasure was going to change that. But that doesn't mean there couldn't have been an organic solution that would have allowed us to achieve larger strategic goals in Afghanistan. And through time and trade and engagement helped bring along a country in order to get it to the place where we think it would have been better for them and better for our own interests as well. But unfortunately, we have some people that it, it is a one-size-fits-all solution. You go in. I once asked this question, another personal story real quick. I once asked this question in Iraq. I said, why are we the only military in the world from a constitutional republic that is inherently federalist that goes overseas, overthrows dictatorships, and then sets up parliamentary democracies with centrally planned economies? Why do we do this? Why do we do this, especially in areas where they could actually probably benefit from some degree of federalism instead of a centralized government that controls everything? But I digress. So let's go over, let, let's, again, I know I'm taking a lot of time on this podcast, but it, it's an in-depth issue and I, and I want to make sure that I'm doing it justice. <clears throat> the other thing that we have to learn from Afghanistan, and I would argue Iraq as well, is the process we use in this country before we send people to war. Now, I understand that there was a debate with respect to whether or not we go into Afghanistan and Iraq. The debate on Afghanistan was fairly quick. Most people saw a, a legitimate reason to go over there. They saw a just reason to go over there. Iraq was a little bit more of a, a conversation. Ron Paul actually predicted a lot of what is going on right now as a result because he was able to see beyond the immediate concerns that we had and where this would all lead. Now, I will tell you right now, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Paul. I don't always agree with him on foreign policy, but I do think it's fair to point out when somebody predicted things fairly accurate 20 years ago. And it's because he's a student of history. Now, again, I don't always agree with all of his reason reasoning or conclusions. But I do think it's fair to look back and say, what did he see about American culture, about American political culture, about American foreign policy and military culture that allowed him to accurately predict a lot of what's going on? And I think part of it is rooted in the idea that ever since the 60s, we have gotten away, really the 50s, we have gotten away from this idea that in order, before you send men and women into harm's way, you have to have a deliberative process within Congress and you have to have a declaration of war. Now, they will say all day long, well, Congress still has the authority because they approve the budget and they can withdraw the funding to support combat operations overseas. That's a cop-out. I want Congress to display an ounce of the courage they expect out of the men and women in uniform and actually vote on whether or not they're going to send them to war. And I want there to be a robust discussion about what does victory look like and is it reasonable to expect the men and women that we will send into harm's way to attain it? Because there are certain military objectives that you can give to our men and women in uniform, and they will execute. There are other objectives that you can give them that are simply beyond their purview. 
It is not within their capability. It's not as if they lack capability. It's not as if they're somehow weak or they're unwilling to sacrifice. You have given a job they're not designed to do or you've given a job where the conditions are not present for them to be able to accomplish it. And that's part of the debate that is supposed to take place when we go to war. That debate largely takes place before you go to war and then once you make the declaration, we expect the executive branch to be able to execute the war in a way that makes sense. But there should be a common discussion with respect to what the reasons are for war, what the objectives are, what the commitment will be, and what victory looks like. And if we can't answer some of those questions, even on a basic level, if we can't answer some of those questions, then what business does anybody in Washington, D.C. have sending someone into harm's way. So the first lesson I hope that we get out of this is that we have to follow the constitutional process before we go to war. I understand after 9-11, believe me, I was in the military in 9-11. 9-11 is the reason why I became a Green Beret. It's the reason why I went to Iraq. I understand. But we have to have that conversation in the midst of everything that, was, of everything that is going on in order to ensure that when we do strike back, it is effective and that we've done so in such a way that supports our men and women in military to be able to accomplish their objective and get home as safely as possible. Two, that feeds into clearly defining your objectives. They can adapt. I'm not suggesting that when you have an, at, the, at the outset of war, when it becomes a, a, apparent that we have a legitimate reason to go to war and you set down objectives, that the objectives can't change based off of circumstances on the ground. They can, but there needs to be a discussion about that. That, that's not as easy as just saying, oh, well, we've changed our minds. Now we want to do something drastically different. That is not the way that we should conduct war. We should have respect for the reasons why we went to the war in the first place and what we're trying to attain as a result of going to war. And if it needs to change, fine, but let's have a deliberative process because that's how we operate as a representative government. I'm not suggesting that the executive branch doesn't have the power to execute the war in the midst or once, once war has been declared. I, I don't believe in war by committee once it's been declared. But you damn well better have a committee before you go, because that's what representative government is about. Secondly, when you actually establish those goals, the thing that you have to look at is not just some ideal that you would like to achieve. You have to be realistic about timelines and the amount of blood and treasure you want to expend to meet your goals. Are we giving our men and women in uniform achievable objectives? And what do they need to achieve them? And if they, need, if they need one thing, don't give them something else. Provide them the resources necessary to do the job quickly, effectively, and to get back home safely. So the overall lesson, here, here's the overall lessons from Afghanistan, in my opinion. One, follow the constitutional process. Two, provide clear goals. Three, if goals are going to change, there needs to be a, a deliberative process where we actually assess that to determine whether or not it's, it's a proper adjustment from the original strategy. Four, we need to understand that if we're going to engage in nation building, there need to be certain conditions present for us to set up the sort of you know, so-called Western democracies within the classical liberal tradition that we want to see. There, there are conditions beyond our control that make such an objective possible or nearly impossible. And we have to assess that before we set that as an objective. And finally, we need to understand that if we find ourselves in a situation where we have to extricate ourselves from a conflict that we are in, there is a proper way to do it and there is an improper way to do it. The proper way to do it is to make sure that you have at the very least fulfilled your commitment to the U.S. military and civilian personnel that you have overseas, as well as the allies that may have risked everything in order to work with you, and to do everything you can to make sure that them, strategic equipment, strategic documents, your allies are able to leave the country safely. If that is not a condition of us leaving, then we have lied to people that we ask to trust us. And if you lose trust on the national stage to that degree, don't expect people to trust you in the future. And the next time you send men and women to combat and they are trying to beg someone to work with them to tell them, no, trust us this time. And they look back and they say, you might have the watches, but our enemies have the time. You don't get to say that they're not willing to fight or they're not brave enough. They're simply looking at our own history of military engagement and throwing it back in our face, and justifiably so. So we still have to keep our word when we promise that we're going to do something. 
we should just be a whole lot more careful about the promises we attempt to make. Lastly, I just want to say to everybody that did serve in Afghanistan, I can only imagine what you are personally feeling right now. Some of you may be elated that we're finally pulling out. Most of the people I talk to, regardless of how they feel about the U.S. pulling out, are furious with respect to how this withdrawal is taking place. And honestly, as someone that has been in the military, as someone that's been in combat, as someone that's now in government, I don't, I don't know how to explain what we're doing right now because, quite frankly, I can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. And for that, I am deeply sorry. But what I don't want you to do is question whether or not your service meant anything. Because even though, if there's, a, even though there's a lot of bad things going on right now, there's a lot of bad things that were going on before, and you had a hand in stopping it. And just because you weren't permitted to stop it indefinitely doesn't mean that you didn't walk in at a certain point in somebody's life, whether it was a fellow service member or whether it was an Afghan, whether it was that small child that would have been harmed or hurt or raped or brutalized, that because you were there, it didn't happen. Because you were there, they had a chance to do something else. And even in the midst of everything that's going on right now, you bought them time. You served honorably. Nobody has a right to take that from you. Nobody can change that reality. You are not responsible for the political decisions that are made on your behalf. You are responsible for what you did with the time you have and the service you rendered to your country. And for what it's worth, I'm proud of it. And I thank you. Once again, this is Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much. This is one episode where I'd love to get feedback on. I mean, we've been talking now for about 50 minutes which is nowhere near enough time to go through all of the different ins and outs with respect to U.S. foreign policy, what's going on in Afghanistan. I, I've tried to be fair in my overall assessment. I've tried to offer what would be practical uh, solutions or what we could have done differently and, and what we can learn from this going forward. I hope that part is at least helpful or intriguing. If you have other ideas, comment on this one. Let us know. Because this is a discussion we're going to be having for quite some time and quite frankly deserves to be talked about for quite some time both on behalf of our own service members, our own national interests and strategy, and also on behalf of the Afghan people. Thank you very much for joining. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.